This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on Channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet, on free-to-air satellite PAS10 and on the internet at www.channelafrica.co.za. You can follow us on Facebook at Channel Africa and on Twitter it's at Channel Africa 1. I'm Amanda Machaka in studio with Jola Netulo and Nasile Zuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Malawians expressed concern that President Lazarus Chakwera did not wear a mask upon arrival and meetings in Tanzania. Zambia is making steady progress in combating the Africa migratory locusts that hit three of its ten provinces, and Uganda destroys more than four million defective condoms. But first, here's the news with Jordan. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Amanda. Good afternoon. At least eight people have been confirmed dead in a petrol station explosion in Lagos, Nigeria. The State Emergency Management Agency says the explosion ignited a fire. 25 homes, 16 shops and a primary school have also been destroyed in the Barua area. The explosion occurred in the early hours of Thursday. The cause of the blast is still unclear, but emergency services say a gas emission had been identified and contained. South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, has once again lashed out at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. He says answering questions from the State Capture Commission from the 16th to the 20th of November will be an inconvenience for him. In a statement released by the J.G. Zuma Foundation, he says he's concerned that his plea for the recusal of the Commission Chairperson, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo, has fallen on deaf ears. In a previous letter, Zuma's lawyer asked Zondo to recuse himself because of what he called the continued bias against the former president. Some weeks ago, DCJ Zondo told a media conference that they have summoned Zuma to come to the Commission in November as he doesn't negotiate appearance dates with witnesses. However, the JG Zuma Foundation argues that it is not fair for Zondo to expect Zuma to make an appearance while he has not responded to the request for his recusal. The United Nations has warned that continued invoking of ethnic affiliations and hate speech in Guinea's election campaigns could lead to violence. In a joint statement, UN rights boss Michelle Bachelet and acting special advisor on the prevention of genocide, Pramila Patton, have urged candidates to refrain from hate speech. President Alpha Conde, who is seeking a controversial third term, is largely backed by Malinka people, while his main opponent, main opponent rather, Selo Daliendi, Yalo is largely backed by Fulani people. Guinea is set to hold presidential elections on the 18th of this month. Amnesty International says so far at least 50 people have been killed during demonstrations against President Conde's third-term bid. 
Authorities in Mali have confirmed the release of a dozen political and military figures arrested during a coup in August. They include former Prime Minister Bubo Sisse in an official statement. The authorities say the former detainees would remain at the disposition of the courts if needed. On Monday, the transitional government announced a new cabinet in which members of the junta were handed several key posts, including defence, security and territorial administration and national reconciliation. The West African regional bloc ECOWAS has also also lifted sanctions on Mali. And finally, Germany has reported a spike in daily coronavirus infections, with confirmed cases rising to more than 4,000. It's the highest number of cases in a 24-hour period since April. One of the worst hit is the capital, Berlin. Health Minister Jens Spahn has described the increase in infections as worrying. At the end of the day, it's us, the citizens, who, through prudent actions, have brought Germany through this crisis so far, not least because you've integrated the rules into your day-to-day life. The situation in the capital shows how careless, sometimes ignorant actions on the pandemic can quickly lead to other developments. So I can only expressly welcome measures taken by the Berlin government. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo, and now for a sports update with Neto Chimani. Thank you, Jolani. From the sports desk, a very good afternoon. We begin the sports update at this hour with rugby. The regular Super Rugby competition went into lockdown at the end of March, but returns with a domestic flavor with three added teams, 21 matches, and a chase to a unique finale in November. The four existing Vodacom Super Rugby teams, Vodacom Bulls, Emirates Lions, Salsi Sharks and DHL Stormers, have been joined by the Toyota Cheetahs, Pagisa Pumas and Duffel Lagachrikwas. The season will resume at 1900 Central African time on Friday the 9th of October when the Salsi Sharks take on the Emirates Lions in Durban in the KwaZulu-Natal province, while the following day the Toyota Cheetahs and Vodacom Bulls will host the Pakisa Pumas at 16.30 Central African time and Duffel Laga at 1900 respectively. SABC Sport commentator Sikmalele Sokyelelwa took a closer look at the fixtures. Now some of the players will start hitting some form. You look at Lukanya, Lukanya played that week for the Sharks. He played last weekend for the Springbok Gold and he'll be playing this weekend for the Sharks. And so that's what you want as a rugby player as well. Yes, you can gym and pick up weights and squat the whole day, but you need to be on the park. After nearly a year without kicking the ball, the African continent returns to the field of play this week. South Africa's Bafana Bafana welcome the brave warriors of Namibia tonight at 1900 Central African time at the Royal Bafuken Stadium in the northwest province and will face Chipolopolo of Zambia on Sunday at the same venue. These international friendlies are a dress rehearsal for the Africa Cup of Nations, Afghan qualifiers taking place in November. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto NETO Chemani. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Building Africa with love. 
Hujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts, and if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday, and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Humanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Humanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance, from an African perspective. You're listening to Africa Digest right on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. While Malawi is enforcing the use of face masks as a preventive measure to the novel coronavirus, various Malawians have expressed concern that President Lazarus Chakwera did not wear a mask upon arrival and meetings in Tanzania on Wednesday. This, many people say, is contrary to what he advocates for while in Malawi, that people should wear masks. This comes as cases of COVID-19-related deaths have reached 180 as of Monday this week, Josh Mango reports from Plantea. Pictures of President Lazarus Chakwera and a team of his officials exposed them of not wearing masks as they arrived and held discussions with their counterparts. Since Wednesday, social media has been awash with calls that the Malawi leader should be quarantined when he returns home in accordance with his own government's coronavirus rules. The president traveled to Tanzania and when he was leaving Malawi, in the morning, the Malawi leader wore a mask, but upon arrival in Tanzania, he met Tanzania's president, John Magufuli, and ditched his mask. Even the first lady, Monica Chakwera, was also pictured with a group of Malawians living in Tanzania, and no one wore a mask. During his trips to Zambia and Zimbabwe, as well as to Mozambique, Chakwera wore a mask. But what is the take of Bartholomew Kawina? A social advocate. Dr. Lazarus Chakwera not wearing a face mask when he was in Tanzania. But to me it was quite surprising. I know when he was living at Malawi for Tanzania, he put on a face mask. But when he was there meeting President John Pombe Magufuli, he was seen not wearing a face mask. But not only him who, who did not wear a face mask, but even the President of Tanzania himself and the other dignitaries, did not wear a face mask. I understand in Tanzania, President Magufuli uh, banned the wearing of face masks and um, from the, the tweet he sent in May this year, uh, he communicated to his fellow uh, Tanzanians that no one should be wearing a face mask. Of course, he had his own reasons. Although this, uh, uh, this uh, Twitter 
a message was later refuted by uh, Tanzania government spokesperson in Semajin Kuwa Serikali. But uh, all what has been happening since that uh, post, uh, the ban was uh, real. because uh, So maybe President Dr. Lazarus Chakwera uh, did not put on a face mask following what uh, the Tanzanians are doing. So to me it was surprising to see him not wearing face masks, but perhaps he had his own good reasons for not wearing uh, the same. However, others back the president saying his decision is in line with Tanzania's policy stand of not putting on a mask. Chisomo Piri is one of those saying the president has done nothing wrong. The reason of not wearing a mask on the Tanzanian trip is that uh, he's taking how the Tanzanians are taking about this corona. And also because of his counterpart, everybody in Tanzania is not wearing masks. That's why they just forsought the way the Tanzanians are doing. Initially, Magufuli declared in June that Tanzania had eliminated the coronavirus pandemic. Tanzania last reported coronavirus data in April when there were 509 cases and 29 deaths. As of today, Malawi has recorded a total of 5,803 cases, 183 deaths and 4,575 recoveries. George Mango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Zambia is making steady progress in combating the Africa migratory locusts that hit three of its ten provinces. Meanwhile, there has been concern from stakeholders that if not speedily controlled, the country could have a food crisis considering that the provinces affected are part of major producers of food. Our Zambia correspondent Arthur Davis Gopo gives us an update on the matter. In September 2020, Zambia officially confirmed that the country has an invasion of locusts in three provinces. The country gave an update that parts of southern province, western and central, have the locust swarm terrorizing both crops and affecting livestock. The Zambian government put a red alert on the situation and moved in with its partners, such as the International Red Locust Control Organization for Southern and Central Africa, and the Food and Agriculture Organization FAO to assess the situation. Government confirms that they are now on the ground dealing with the locust invasion, both in air and on land. A partner in this fight, the International Red Locust Control Organization for Central and Southern Africa, says the exercise that commenced over a week ago may take about two months to deal with, considering that there are different locations affected. According to the International Red Locust Control Organization for Central and Southern Africa, scientist who is also acting as director for Zambia, Dr. Elliot Zisanza, about 30,000 hectares of land could have been affected in parts of southern and western provinces. Dr. Elliot Zisanza says so far about 5,000 hectares has been surveyed and sprayed. So the, the, the surveys have are going on and also the control is also going on. Since last week, spraying has been going on and a lot of progress has been made. Close to about 5,000 hectares have been sprayed now. You know, the survey, the survey is quite extensive. You know, you cover a large area and uh, in some areas you don't need to spray, in some areas you mark it for spraying. So I'll say close to about uh, 30,000 hectares will have been surveyed. And then out of that 8,000 have been found to, to require control. Zambia is not the only country affected, but Namibia, Zimbabwe and Botswana are as well 
According to the Food and Agriculture Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization warns that about 7 million people in the four affected countries who are still recovering from the impact of the 2019 drought and grappling with the economic impacts of COVID-19 pandemic could experience further food and nutrition insecurity. And the civil society organization Scaling Up Nutrition, CSO Sun, Zambia coordinator Matthews Muhuru, is concerned with food security in the whole country as he notes that the affected provinces are key to food production in the country, both in livestock and crop production. Mr. Muhuru is further calling for an expedited strategy to combat this food security threat. You know, food security is a very big issue uh, in the country. If you look at southern province uh, and western province, these are, you know, the two provinces that, you know, produce most of the livestock uh, when it comes to cattle, when it comes to even goats, you know, the, the two giant uh, provinces that would, would the rest of the country depends on. So it's the locusts invasion, you know, they destroy the pasture, they destroy the food that the animals are supposed to eat, and that is going to add more stresses into the livestock uh, farming. So it's a very big issue that would just make our country uh, fail to come out of this food insecurity situation. It is not yet established as to whether the other countries affected are also doing their part to contain the destructive locusts and hoppers. And the Zambian government has not been so helpful to provide information on that aspect. But Dr. Elio Sanza says it is the responsibility of the Zambian government and other governments to coordinate as those countries are not member states of the organization. Our organization is not membership, so Botswana and Namibia are not members. So what will happen is that the, the government of Zambia will work with the government of Botswana to see how they can deal with that situation in their country. Arthur Devsiskopo, reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. According to the South African National Editors Forum, SANEF, the country's media has done very well in ensuring that ordinary people are given a voice during the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as highlighting the great impact of the disease on people. However, in a recent interview, SANEF Secretary General Mahlatze Mahlatze raised concern on the lack of scientific reporting of the virus, noting that this has to do with a shortage of specialist health and science reporters in newsrooms. She says the media sector has also been dealt a severe blow by the pandemic through job losses. I don't think we've had enough stories around the science of the pandemic itself and I think that might be speaking to just a lot of newsrooms no longer have specialized health reporters or science reporters so we've kind of dealt with the impact of the disease more than we have the signs of it. What's your assessment around the sources that we include in our stories? I think we've done very well in not only speaking to government. I remember in the beginning there was this thing where it appeared that other experts that were not in the advisory council were being gagged. But the media pushed forward to ensure that we are able to speak to people outside of formerly the government sources, but also the advisory council. So finding experts that are at universities to help do this, uh, to report on whether government response has been adequate. I think that has been quite good. Important to also just doing the story of the impact of the disease. People went to speak to ordinary people, and that was the most critical part, because 
this disease has had devastating impact on ordinary people, has exposed them, glaring inequalities in our country. And I think the media has done very well to ensure that ordinary people's voices are brought into the story and highlight that great impact of the disease uh, on people. I think also, you know, people have gone to economists because of the economic link to the story. Statisticians in terms of excess death and understanding that. So I think there's been quite a varied uh, number of sources on the pandemic itself, and it has not been one direction or one element. You know, it's not just been, here are the figures, this is the amount of people that are dying. But we have found the human stories and the other aspects of the story in terms of how it's impacting the economy, how it's impacting even the politics, how the corruption that then followed. So there's been varied sources in it, uh, one weakness is always that, you know, we must always be aware to ensure that we don't only speak to male experts, but to women as well. And I've seen uh, some improvement, especially with kind of like the scientists that are there. There have been uh, women's sources that have been quoted, but obviously it's never enough. We really come from a low base in this country in terms of quoting women as experts in anything. So we must be doing better all the time. Have we helped in addressing misinformation and disinformation myths Mm -hmm. and all of that on the ground? Because it was a big concern in the beginning of the pandemic, fake messages circulating on social media. And what's your assessment now in terms of what people know around COVID? I think it even went further because once there was misinformation that was potentially damaging, we saw newsrooms picking up on that misinformation and putting it in the news to say this is misinformation and this is not true and this is fake news. I think that's quite important because sometimes these things find space in family WhatsApp groups and on social media and the media doesn't necessarily say anything about it and people then believe that it's true. But in this instance, because of the, you know, sometimes what could be dangerous implications. We saw the media report on that fake news to say that this is fake news. And I think that was quite important because the fake news was spreading quite quickly because people were desperate for information and people were just not knowing what to believe and who to believe. So for traditional trusted media to pick up on misinformation and highlight that it is misinformation, it really went a long way. You highlighted the fact that we have not paid enough attention in terms of our reporting. I think you said on the science of the virus, right? Yeah, I mean, I think with the generalization of the newsrooms and newsrooms shrinking, we have lost specialists. You know, that is the truth. And that has contributed to why, for example, we don't have science reporters or even health reporters, you know. And that is why I've had even our sources of information in terms of health expertise, experts, is quite limited. So I think, you know, unfortunately, given what the media world is going through, uh, you might not be able to afford reporters that specialize in specific uh, deeds. But it is important to have training, especially if this disease is going to be with us for a while. What measures would you propose to improve media coverage if a similar crisis occurs in future, especially if it's a crisis where we all don't know much about what we're dealing with? 
I think we must just always be honest with the public. So this is the latest that we have now been told about this disease and recap and say that we know in previous uh, occasions this is what the scientific world was telling us. I think that's quite important so that the public learns with us and understands that, no, we are not getting things wrong, but it's because the scientific world is changing and their views is changing. So that, I think, is always going to be quite critical to take listeners on that journey. I welcome the fact that, you know, a lot of radio stations, television channels open up their spaces for all young people to also ask questions directly to experts because they realize people have questions and want to know. I think that is quite critical in the pandemic where people feel that, you know, you are, you are allowing them space for them to also learn for themselves. That is quite critical. And I think we need to do a lot more uh, of those, you know, where you've got, and things that you did like, having, um, what's his name, the professor that's chairing the advisory council, you know, going on television, explaining the pattern of disease, where it's moving, the graphs, etc. Those things are quite important, you know, and it, it allows for people to learn a bit more because when you don't know, you are more afraid. But when you're empowered with the knowledge, you know how to act and then react. That's Mahlazi Mahlazi, Secretary General of the South African National Editors Forum. She was on the line to Jane Rabutada. The South African Federation for Mental Health will tomorrow take part in a world's first 24-hour virtual march for mental health along with 18 other countries. Each country will be allocated an hour where speakers will be sharing the importance of investing in mental health. The march comes as countries gear themselves up to mark World Mental Health Day this coming Saturday, a day dedicated to raising awareness of mental health issues around the world and mobilizing efforts in support of mental health. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Masuta Namujaji, Project Leader for Information and Awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health. Welcome to Channel Africa and thank you for joining us. What inspired the idea behind this virtual march and how effective do you expect it to be in addressing the plight of people living with mental illness? Thank you so much for welcoming me, uh, Amanda. I, I missed the question a bit there because there was a bit of noise, but I, I caught what you were saying, talking about the match, the, the first world, the world's first virtual match for mental health that is happening starting from tomorrow. And it's part of celebration for World Mental Health Day. The South African Federation for Mental um, Health is calling on South Africans to come and join us in this match that is uh, named Move for Mental uh, Mental Health because really mental health um, burden we face around the world is simply just not being matched by the responses that we, uh, that it demands. Uh, the COVID-19 has really just highlighted the plight of people that need mental health services and are not able to, to, to access them. And we are speaking about uh, an estimation of 75 to 85% people that need these mental health care services that do not receive them in countries like South Africa, low, in, low and middle income countries. So the match tomorrow is really just to make noise around uh, in, and make a case for investing in, in mental, health, uh, uh, mental health. And we're going to have speakers that are going to be sharing why it's important uh, that mental health, one, uh, which is one of the, uh, of the areas that has suffered uh, uh, prioritization and underfunding for years, now is the time 
to say we need to invest in mental health. And can you give us a sense of other countries that will join in the march? So it's going to be a total of uh, 18 countries that are taking place. It's going to be New Zealand, Australia, Indonesia, uh, Philippines, Nepal, and India, Sri Lanka. And then we also have the Kenya, Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Nigeria, and in, in, in South Africa, as well as the U.S. So the virtual match is going to move around the world for the next 24 hours, starting from tomorrow, uh, on the 9th of October. And um, every country that uh, of the 19 countries has been allocated an hour where have speakers and influencers who are just making a case for mental health. And in South Africa, we have young people that are sharing their experiences and challenges that that they and their communities face when trying to access mental health services. You mentioned earlier how COVID-19 has exposed the challenges that people living with mental illnesses face. To what extent have um, you know these challenges been um, overburdening their mental health services in the country? I think because uh, mental health services have generally uh, suffered neglect for years, uh, the COVID-19 and because of the impact that it had on the mental well-being of people has really just increased that burden on the uh, on, men, on most health system and most health system uh, when they were responding to the physical emergency uh, of the COVID-19 uh, men, mental health services were also were, were just put on the back burner and they were not prioritized so that has been a problem especially um, I mean, before the COVID-19, close to 1 billion people around the world had um, a, a mental disorder of, 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 of some sort. But now that, 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 I mean, that number has grown. And to what extent, we don't really yet know. We don't have the actual figure because COVID-19 is still here with us and it's still having that impact on people. Whether you've lost uh, your, your, your livelihood, whether you've lost a job, opportunities, or you lost loved ones. Or you, so it's really have been, it has had a huge impact on the mental well-being of people and the, that um, it was under-prioritized under, under COVID-19 as uh, governments tried to protect the immediate I mean, I mean, like introduced immediate response to physical health, it really suffered. All right, lastly, and uh, a quick one, how can members of the public take part in the match? The members of the public can take part by uh, logging on to, I mean, or signing on to the website that has been dedicated for the match. It's moveformentalhealth.com, or they can look for the speak. Uh, Sorry, Speak Your Mind campaign. Speak Your Mind is the name of the Facebook page where this live match is going to be happening. And in South Africa, it's going to start at 11 in the morning. That is tomorrow. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for speaking to me. That was Masutane Mujaji, a project leader for information and awareness at the South African Federation for Mental Health. It's 17.30 Central African time. Joala Netulu is standing by with the news headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
Thank you, Amanda. Making headlines, at least eight people have been confirmed dead in a petrol station explosion in Lagos in Nigeria. South Africa's former President Jacob Zuma has once again lashed out at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry. He says answering questions from the commission from the 16th to the 20th of November will be an inconvenience for him. And finally, the United Nations has warned that continued invoking of ethnic affiliations and hate speech in Guinea's election campaigns could lead to violence. For Channel Africa, I'm Jonathan. Too long. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLE to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. The United Nations International Day of the Girl Child will be marked on the 11th of October. This annual campaign focuses attention on the need to address the challenges girls face and to promote their empowerment. In recognition with the day, the Imbumba Foundation, in partnership with the Nelson Mandela Foundation, Love Life Trust, and others have kick-started a media activation tour in schools around South Africa's Mpumalanga province, which will run until the 12th of October. For more on the objectives of the tour, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Linda Ngomo, Chief Executive Officer of Love Life. Welcome to Channel Africa Talk and thank you for joining us. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Now, what is the key focus of this year's commemoration of the International Day of the Girl Child, especially given the global pandemic which has impacted girls in so many ways? Well, the theme for this year, being my voice, our equal future, I think when we've got situations like the pandemic that we're facing right now, it's important to understand that we cannot have a a future for girl children that's equal for them if their voices are not being heard. And in hearing their voices, we need to understand that in any society, whenever there is a crisis, the first people to be affected are women, the first people to be affected are girl children. And so in this situation, we really need to be making sure that as we focus on trying to navigate the um, the pandemic, we're not leaving them behind. We're making sure that the challenges that they're currently facing are also addressed in order to be able to, to realize an equal future for them. And what's your assessment in terms of how South Africa has helped ease the plight of girls during this difficult time? Um, look, um, 
South Africa is really one of the countries that um, looks at the, the plight of girls, not only when we have pandemics, but if you look at where we are as a country compared to the rest of the world when it comes to gender equality, we're really a country where girls can freely go to school. We're looking at a country where they are not limited. Um, child marriage is not a big crisis in South Africa as it is in other, in other um, countries. And I mean, at an overall level, we've just made sure that in the support that we're giving to young, um, young people, we're making sure that the girl child is being included. Uh, just today, we had um, an event where young girls were being given sanitary protection. And as you would know, that uh, sanitary health is one of the issues that affects thousands of young girls every year, making them unable to go to school, missing up to 60 days of school in a year. So South Africa has made sure through various initiatives that as far as we possibly can, we try to close that gap for, for our young girls. And let's talk about the media activation tour. What does it seek to achieve? We're seeking to make sure, first of all, it's, it's twofold. It's about celebrating girls at the different places that we're going to, giving the messages of encouragement because they are writing matric in an environment that nobody that's alive today has ever experienced where there has been a global, um, a global um, pandemic. So it's celebrating girls, but it's also making them aware of what initiatives have been put in place to help, them, uh, to help support them through um, the upcoming weeks when they're going to start actually writing the matric um, examinations. So it's making them aware of the partnership between Love Life, the Old Mutual Foundation, and the Nelson Mandela Foundation, where we've availed infrastructure in different parts of the country where that's been sanitized, they can go and prepare for examinations there. There is also the social media awareness of where they can get help in terms of preparing for exams, and then also access to a psychosocial contact center that's toll-free, where they can call if they're experiencing any kind of stress, whether it's I'm feeling stressed about my exams or my parents don't understand that I need to be studying, whatever it is that could potentially be an obstacle for them. We're availing counselors, trained psychologists and social workers to be able to help them navigate this very stressful time in the life of any young person. And is there any particular reason for concentrating on the Bumalanga province or the schools in question? It's, it's not to, it's, it, we, we're doing it nationally, but um, we're just and, and in Pumalang at this point in time to, to be able to provide um, the support that's required here in, in the province um, to just make sure, because sometimes some of these events tend to be concentrated in, in, the, in the big cities and the smaller, uh, in the big provinces rather than cities, and then the smaller provinces tend to get um, left behind. So it's just making sure that the young people in the smaller provinces are as aware of what is happening in their province as the ones in the bigger ones. And uh, lastly, uh, Dr. Ngomo, any message or appeal that you have as we observe International Day of the Girl Child and uh, Beyond the Day? Well, the message that I shared with the young ladies today was that the biggest problems that we face in South Africa when it comes to, to girls is teenage pregnancy, and it is in their hands to make sure that if they're sexually active, they're taking contraception to prevent um, pregnancy. 
And also HIV AIDS, South Africa continues to have the highest numbers of new rates among age groups 17 to 24 and its girls. So I was teaching them that they need to have a mantra that says no condom, no sex. They have got the power to be able to make sure that they don't fall pregnant while they're teenagers. They have the power to make sure that they don't contract HIV, AIDS, and they have got the power to grab the opportunities that they've been given academically and make sure that it's not a wasted opportunity, but they make it count. Thank you so much for that message and thank you for joining us, Doc. You're most welcome, Amanda. Thank you very much for the opportunity to chat about girls today. That's Dr. Linda Ngomo, Chief Executive Officer of Love Life. Building Africa with love. Bujambo Africa. If there are holes in this continental ship, we are its children. Let us go and stop the holes. Let us gladly do it with our hearts. And if we cannot, then let us die. We will make a plug of our brains and put them into the ship, but condemn it never. Catch us on Channel Africa from 10 to 11 a.m. every Friday and Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. 1740 Central African Time, you're listening to Africa Digest. My name is Amanda Machaga. Sudan has been hit by devastating floods, the worst seen in decades. More than 600,000 people have been impacted across 17 of the country's 18 states, with homes destroyed and farmland damaged just ahead of the harvest season. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO, is calling for urgent funding to support Sudan, a country already facing alarmingly high rates of hunger and food insecurity. More from Dominique Bergion, the director of FAO's Emergency and Rehabilitation Division, who has just returned from a mission to Sudan. These floods are truly devastating. They are the largest affecting the country in over 70 years. We have conducted rapid assessments with the Ministry of Agriculture and found that up to 600,000 households have been affected by the impact of the floods. More than 2.2 million hectares have been damaged. So it's quite serious. But the problem here is that this comes at the top of an already uh, difficult situation for millions of people. As a matter of fact, before these floods, 9.6 million people were already in acute food insecurity. Already a very difficult situation related to a variety of, uh, of issues, uh, socio-economic crisis, uh, COVID crisis, and even now in some part of the country there are even issues related to locust. So quite a severe situation that therefore requires our full attention. You travelled to two of the affected sites. What were your impressions? So we went to two of the most affected states. We undertook a mission with senior government officials. As a matter of fact, the Minister of Agriculture was with us. And we spent two days in Blue Nile State and in Senar State. And there, what we could see is the variety of the damage. We saw the impact on commercial farmers. And with their field damage, there will be very little employment opportunities for these people. So this is one of the things we saw. Uh, We saw also uh, livestock owners, pastoralists, being severely affected uh, by the impact of the floods, having lost for some of them up to 75% of their livestock, which in turn 
is a problem for them because this is their main source of livelihood. We saw that 42% of those uh, affected by, by the floods are uh, women addict households. So we went to the field, we, we spent time with them, and what we saw is that, I mean, their situation is very, very severe. At this time of the year, they should have sorghum that is one meter and a half high, ready to harvest. Instead, we could see field full of weeds with sorghum and that will not be harvested. So in talking to these women, we understand that they are already struggling, that they are adopting what we call negative coping strategies, which means that they are cutting the number of the meals, the quantity of the meals. And what we found is that at this point of the year already, they are only having one meal per day and a very basic meal. So very bad situation. And therefore, these people need our assistance. How will these floods affect food security across the country? The food security situation prior to the floods was already severe. 9.6 million people in acute food insecurity and 2.2 million people in emergency phase. When we visited the Blue Nile state, what was clear is that we were in a state where 27% of the population prior to the floods was already in acute food insecurity. So it is clear that with the impact of the floods, with the fact that people will not be able to harvest, with the fact that they have been losing animals, with the fact that prices are extremely volatile and have a tendency to increase uh, significantly. I mean, the estimate is that the food security situation will further deteriorate and that therefore we need to be ready uh, to provide at scale, uh, livelihood uh, saving assistance uh, in collaboration, of course, with other agencies. What is FAO doing to assist Sudan? Since the beginning of the year, FAO, despite the COVID situation, has been able to provide assistance to about 920,000 people, which is quite significant in this context. Now, what we are doing is that we are appealing for additional resources in relation essentially to the floods, but the flood again, being one more driver of acute food insecurity. So what we are doing is essentially appealing for $70 million additional to basically cover the needs of the people for the two coming season in terms of cash assistance for people to meet their most immediate needs, plus agricultural inputs for the coming season so that immediately they can go back to their productive activities. Always bearing in mind that FAO, while providing uh, humanitarian livelihood-saving activities, is very keen to build the resilience of populations, which, as we know, are essential when people face regular shocks. That's uh, Dominique Bedjian, the Director of the Food and Agriculture Organization's Emergency and Rehabilitation Division. He was talking to FAO's radio's Charlotte Lomas. From Uganda comes a report that the East African country has destroyed more than 4 million defective condoms. Now 8 million condoms are required to fight HIV, AIDS and other sexually transmitted infections. James Shimanyula reports. The 4 million condoms that were destroyed by the Ugandan government were reportedly manufactured by India-based MHL Healthcare Company in April 2019 and had an expiry date of April 2024. 
Dr. Nelson Musoba, Director General of Uganda's AIDS Commission, confirms that indeed the condoms were destroyed. They have been destroyed. The purpose is to mitigate sexually transmitted diseases. So if they are left out, it is a challenge to our population's health. Uganda has a population of 46 million people. According to a report released recently by the United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS, in short, UNAIDS, Uganda has nearly 2 million people living with AIDS. Dr. Musoba says now that 4 million condoms have been destroyed, 8 million condoms are needed to protect Ugandan women and girls from unplanned pregnancies, HIV, AIDS, and other sexually transmitted infections. Medical experts say sexually transmitted infections are caused by bacteria, viruses, or parasites that are transmitted through unprotected sex. The experts say sexually transmitted diseases can be passed on when a person has unprotected sex or close sexual contact with a person that has the disease. According to the experts, using external male condom or internal female condom every time a person has sex is the best way to prevent sexually transmitted diseases. Most sexually transmitted diseases, the experts say, can be easily treated. However, without a treatment, they can sometimes lead to more serious health problems. As has been said at the beginning, the Ugandan government has destroyed more than 4 million condoms. Now, let us hear what ordinary Ugandans are saying about the destruction of the condoms. I think there is a question of our health system and quality assurance. It's just unbelievable for a country like Uganda to fail to have quality assurance systems that could supervise something like a condom. If condoms can have holes in them, what about things we cannot see with our eyes? He who uses the condoms should be worried. It all goes down to the standards bodies that are afford to to execute their mandate well, to check the quality of items on the Ugandan market. That puts the lives of Ugandans at risk, and I think it gives a lot of homework for the standards bodies. Whether some have been used or not, there is cause for worry, because if so many condoms can find their way onto the market, then there is cause for worry. Those were voices of ordinary Ugandans on the government's decision to destroy more than 4 million condoms with holes. Recently, Kenyan authorities destroyed condoms worth 100,000 United States dollars for failing to meet quality standards. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's time now for our economics news with Nosi Lezuma. Good evening. The World Bank says the coronavirus crisis is expected to drive a 3.3% contraction in sub-Saharan African economies. The bank says this could push 40 million Africans into extreme poverty. The Washington-based lender says growth in the region would rebound in 2021. 
Former South Africa's Power Utility Board member Vanet Klein says she recalls seeing former board chairperson Ben Gubani appearing relentless on the phone with former public enterprises Minister Lynn Brown before a major decision was made. She was she has told the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg that the decision related to the inclusion of ESCOM's former financial director on the le- in the list of executives who who were to be suspended, was made in 2015. Other witnesses, including former ESCOM chairperson Zola Zodzi, have testified in the past that the instruction to suspend the four executives at the time came from former President Jacob Zuma. You know, I found it strange that Dr. Ben was running in and out and coming back and forth. And I think what Dr. Ben said was that he was on the phone with the minister. That happened in that PNG meeting. Yes. And I think it's at that point when that name went back on. Yes. What exactly the minister said to him or did not say, I cannot account for, you'd have to ask Dr. Ben. Yes. But it was at that stage. Yes. Remember the minister in the earlier meeting said to the people who's responsible for. Yes. So what exactly was said between Dr. Ben and the minister, I don't know. The International Monetary Fund IMF has urged Ukraine to adhere to a framework on central bank governance developed with its help after two senior officials were condemned for comments in the media. The National Bank of Ukraine's NBU Supervisory Council declared no confidence in two deputy governors on Monday after they expressed concern about what they saw as attempts to undermine the central bank's independence. The IMF representatives in Ukraine in a statement said the framework has served the NBU and the Ukrainian economy well by strengthening the confidence in the NBU as an independent and professional central bank. The World Trade Organization is expected to announce the final two candidates from a short list of five to lead the agency. Reports suggest they are both women, Ngozi Ogonjo Lwela of Nigeria and Yu Myung Hee of South Korea. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The WTO is an organization currently under severe strain. One of its biggest member countries, the United States, has major concerns, some of which are reflected in a block on new appointments to the body which hears appeals in trade disputes between member countries. That has left one of the WTO's main functions, settling these commercial conflicts, seriously impaired. Dealing with the US could be a major challenge for the next Director General, certainly if President Trump is re-elected. For your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 384.84 Nigerian Nara, 11.35 Botswana Bula, 107.57 Kenyan Shilling and 20.07 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar is trading at 5.59 Brazilian Roll, 78.19 Russian Ruble, 73.27 Indian Rupee, 6.73 Chinese Yuan and at 16.63 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,883 and platinum at $855 per ounce. And the price of Brent crude oil is at $41.63 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosikhe Zuma.
This is Africa Digest. It's five minutes before 6 p.m. Central African time. A recap of our top stories on Africa Digest. Malawians expressed concern that President Lazarus Chakwera did not wear a mask upon arrival and in meetings in Tanzania. Zambia is making steady progress in combating the Africa migratory locusts that hit three of its ten provinces. And Uganda destroys more than four million defective condoms. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Amanda Machaga, producer Lebu Musuebu, and the rest of the team, thank you for listening. Remember, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at channelafrica1. On Facebook, you'll find us at Channel Africa, or you can send an SMS message to our number plus 27763003327. And now we play out with a song by Ashava Africa titled, I Need You.